Our scripture today is from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephali. In the later time he had made glorious way of the sea. In the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, and the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. Those who dwelt in land of deep darkness, a light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod for his oppressor, you have broken as it on the day of Midian, for every boot on the trampling warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and, and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of God of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Maddie. So great for her to read that and all those words in there. I know for some of you, we were to ask you to read, and you read a passage like that, you'd be like, what are these words that you gave me? And Maddie courageously did that. Thank you, Maddie. You know, there's a line at the end of this passage that says, the zeal of the Lord will do this. The zeal of the Lord. This may be a passage that you've heard before at Christmas. Uh, Maybe it's unfamiliar. It's kind of a strange one, and we're going to unpack it a lot this morning, but To start at the end real quick and just to say this, I wasn't going to say this, but it's beautiful to think the zeal of the Lord will do this. It is his absolute pleasure and delight, his zeal. It's almost like like someone coming out of their shoes in excitement to do this thing, to bring this hope, this peace, this joy to us. That is where God is. That is what the advent is like for him is that he could not wait to come. He could not wait to come and his timing. And yet in this passage, we see a people waiting and they're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And in their waiting, it's somewhat gloomy. There's this talk of gloom and darkness. Right before this chapter was darkness and gloom and they felt trapped in it. I was reading an article um, that was describing kind of an odd event that's not talked much about. In December of 1952, London, for five days, had a smog come over the city. And it actually was a a deadly cloud that had both, it contained um, kind of sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, and, and amongst other things, and the cold trapped it there. This, what was called an anti-cyclone, actually took the air and kept this smoggy cloud on the city of London for so long. In fact, it was so bad and choked so many people. There were 12,000 people that perished in this. 12,000. Such a a rare, odd event. And if you look at the photos from that time, 
it's really interesting. They, they posted a bunch of these photos in this article and to see the people, one person riding a bike in complete cloud, I don't even know how they got close enough to get the photo of this person, walking in the darkness, the, the lights, you know, like you see in a fog, the, the, the lamppost trying to break through this smog, but just kind of is this, this circle of light just held there. And people are choking, not just a smog, but a deathly smog. They were living in complete darkness. You couldn't see the sky, everything around them, it seemed like night all the time. And it was so, so horrible for the city. There's something about this passage that we're reading is just like that. These people, not for five days, but for a lengthy period of time, are living in a deep darkness. Maybe not a smog in terms of physical, but an oppressor nonetheless. Where Assyria, this great nation, had taken them captive. And people are watching. Isaiah himself has seen the desolation of his own nation. People taken captive. People living under the weight and, so to speak, smog of death. Assyria was an awful country in the way that they handled everyone around them. Oppressive, death-defying. And it's interesting because you read this, though, and you think, well, how does this really move to us. As I was watching, again, one of my favorite things, the Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, where Charlie Brown seemingly at the beginning goes to Lucy, and Lucy has her little, you know, uh, the doctor is in booth, which seems like what we all need around this time of year. And he goes and he sweeps off the snow, he sits down, he kind of waits for Lucy to come. (laughs) And then she sits there and he starts telling her all his problems and essentially he says this. He says, I just feel depressed. I just feel like it, it, it just, I just can't get out. I'm just nothing. I'm, I'm supposed to, this time I'm supposed to be happy and I'm not happy at all. And of course she dismisses everything he's saying and goes along her rant of, you know, getting money put in her little cup. But it can feel like that. This is a time of year that's supposed to be joyful and happy, and yet there can be this somewhat of a smog over us, a a heaviness, a weight. Maybe some of you feel it, maybe some of you don't, but there's a reality to it. There's a reality in this passage that's driving us to see something that's very important, that the God of heaven and earth was on tippy-toe of zeal, could not wait to come and break in, not just in that time, but late thousands of years later, and then also now to us, because we are under such a cloud that we must have him come. There was a great line in that song, and here's what's amazing about the Lord. Brett didn't even know that uh, necessarily, maybe he did. We didn't talk about it. That's what he was doing, more beautiful. There's a line in that song that said, through the gospel of your son, the last song we just sang, gave me endless hope and peace. That is this passage through the gospel, the proclamation, the announcement of him coming. That's what gospel means. The announcement came endless hope and peace. And those are actually our two points this morning, hope and peace. Thank you, Brett. Hope and peace. So with this passage, let's look at that together. What, how does God actually come and why do we live in a darkness? How does he lift it up? And he does it through his son, the gospel of his son through hope and peace. Let's talk about that hope And it begins right out of the gate. There is, will be no gloom in verse one for for her who was in anguish. 
Again, in verse two, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Historically, reading this passage, Isaiah is seeing, as I mentioned, the darkness. And again, it's not necessarily a fog. It is, though, desolation all around him. The people of, of Israel and Judah, both countries, have, are being attacked. Assyria is impending. They have taken the people. This is, it is just a time of deep darkness. And they're wondering who is going to save them. And it's interesting, even the mention of Zebulun and Naphtali, those two uh, cities, were two of the cities that were taken first. These were the first two places that would fall to Assyria. And I think we need to understand, just for a moment, the everyday darkness that these people were living in. Because it was a time, as I said, you know, in London we read in the 50s of a fog coming for five days. But I think the oppression and, and crushing weight of what was going on was affecting them in every way. Imagine them trying to have hope that there would be some sort of release of this, but all they see is this massive oppressor. As I was reading this, it reminded me of, of um, the writings of a man named Viktor Frankl, a man who was a part of a concentration camp, and yet when he was released, came out, was a neurologist and a psychologist, and he wrote about how do you have hope in a concentration camp? Imagine that. A concentration camp, a place where every one of your worst fears happens to you. Everything you have is stripped away. Everything you are is put in shame. You're nothing but oppressed over and over and over. How do you have hope in that? And he said there are four kinds of hope that was revealed in his research coming out of that. He said the first was hope in self. There's no reality outside of self. Even, even in that, is, this is kind of that, that all I can do is muster up enough to make it through. I, this is kind of one of the, the characters that we enjoy watching on, on film, is those who, who make it to the end, those who have hope or the hope in themselves. All you have is you, don't compromise yourself. That was the first kind of hope. But a lot of those people, as we idolize, find themselves alone and isolated. Their hope in self leaves them to themselves. The second one was hope in circumstances, he said. Security from the things around them, family, money, etc. Many of them may have died of hopelessness because all the things they put themselves were crushed. There's an easy thing to put our hope in their circumstances. And think about this, and even in terms of Israel in this time, if we could just get out from underneath this, if we could just change what it's like to live here, maybe it would feel better. Maybe we would have hope in what God has told us would come true. Hope in circumstances. But we know what circumstances do. The hope changes like Waves coming back up on a shore, it changes with whatever circumstance you have. The third was hope and restoration. Now, maybe some in that that Viktor Frankl realized might make it to the end and it was worth it and I'll come back to them, but they realized that their life after their survival wasn't necessarily better. They continued to struggle with the depression and difficulty of what they went through, the horror 
And even after this, if you read the prophets, even in the Old Testament, the prophets, when they were released, the people of Israel, they still did not have hope. We even looked at this last week with Simeon holding the baby Jesus. He was waiting for the consolation. Consolation because for years, even though they weren't under necessarily the same oppression, their circumstances were different. Maybe there was somewhat of a restoration. They had even rebuilt the temple somewhat. It still didn't give them hope. But finally, Viktor Frankl said this. He said, the last group was a group, but it was very small. And they put their hope where the Nazis could not destroy it. They put their hope in something else. They said that they believed that someone in heaven was looking down on them. A hope that was kept by someone else. A hope that they looked upwards toward. That is what this passage is hitting on here. They are in such dire need. It is very much of what Viktor Frankl is describing. Their pain and their suffering is a day in, day out thing. When it talks about that, even here in terms of the anguish, even down further, it's talking about the yoke of this burden, of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. It's even contrasting that to what they're experiencing then of the everyday pain that they're walking through. The darkness isn't a five-day experience. It's an ongoing thing day in, day out in every corner of their life. How in the world would they have hope that lasts? Because it would be so easy for us to put our hope similarly in things that we can have together. That Christmas is a time when we, well, how are we doing? Do we have everything together? Is it, all, is it all neatly packaged? It is the Instagram nightmare. <laughs> because we want every photo to look perfect. Whether it's on our phone or just right in front of us. And yet, where do we truly have hope? What's going to last after December 25th? What's going to last into the next new year for you? Is it going to be circumstances? Is it going to be something else? Or is it going to be something looking heavenward? That is what this remnant that, the remnant that was considered in this passage was doing. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Imagine that. You've probably experienced somewhat of that lightness when you've been in a heavy cloud, somewhat of depression, maybe even right now. Maybe even you're, you're, you're feeling the weight of, of some sort of depression. I was even listening to the radio the other day, or maybe it was some sort of Spotify or Pandora or something that came on and it popped on and it talked about seasonal affective disorder. And it obviously now is that time. I mean, gosh, what a perfect day. It's gray, rainy, cold. Welcome to Nashville in the winter. And yet the, the description of this, here's what's interesting. Do you know what they talk about as one of the greatest therapies for some of that seasonal affective disorder? One of the three major therapies is called light therapy. It's a therapy where you can actually have a lamp that helps you. The other, many cities have these, even in their cities, who are in places of, of more darkness, there is a reason that God realizes there's something about the light that we need, not just even physically, but emotionally, all of it. There's something, this is all encapsulating. We need 
the light. And you know those moments when you feel, you even feel an experience when something is taken off of you for a moment. And you get a sense of relief just for a moment. Even if it's something you've, you've accomplished or done, there's a sense of that. But what it's talking about here is even greater. It's that we have lived in such darkness, such a cloud that in chapter eight, it's saying they never even thought the sun would rise again. And here breaks the clouds and the light comes through. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. It's a breaking in. Even verse three here of this chapter, it says, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is language of the Messiah. It's actually language of redemption. Notice this, multiplied the nation, increased the joy. All of those words were used way, 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 way back at the very beginning of the Bible to say all of the increase, when you experience all of those things, an overabundance of it, because they have, all they've experienced is a lack. You're now gonna experience an overabundance of these things. It will overwhelm you with joy. The nation will be increased with it as with the harvest. It's a breaking in to say it's gonna be overwhelmed. You think you can celebrate, but the celebration doesn't happen until there's a breaking in of God, until the light comes through the darkness. We were uh, downtown some time ago uh, with some friends of ours. We actually went to the Hermitage Hotel. They had come into town to visit. We had taken them uh, to the Hermitage just to see it's a, you know, if you haven't been to the Hermitage Hotel, downtown, it's a beautiful hotel. And we're really enjoying it. And uh, Megan, my wife and I, and this couple were there just enjoying it. We decided just to uh, grab, grab a drink and just sit and enjoy. And uh, we could hear music in the ballroom there, uh, the huge, beautiful ballroom. All of a sudden, the, this song comes on, Barry White's, My First, My Last, My Everything. Maybe one of your favorites, but all of a sudden, Megan, my wife, hops up and, and hears the song and goes over to see and look inside the doors of the ballroom, and, um, and she had talked about, gosh, I need to go see that, and we're like, wait, you're going to go see that? Wait, what? And the, the other three, the rest of us, the three of us were going, wait, where are you going? The doors open, she looks inside, and all of a sudden, she disappears, and we're going, what is she doing? Like, why is she going to the wedding? What is she doing? Well, eventually, after a, a, a minute or two, walk over to the door and I, I open the door to look inside and there on the dance floor with the bride is my wife, Megan, dancing with the bride and the wedding party is on the floor. And it, it was just amazing. And I was sitting there, I was like, this is why she's way more fun than me. I'm sitting there looking through the door like, wow, are you serious? This is so, uh, and of course, I I couldn't go in there. I didn't feel like I could, but I just loved watching her do it. And I was amazed at what was, that is what's interesting about this. There is a breaking in, into this passage where Israel itself thinks, and as much as there should be joy, as much as there should be dancing, as much as there should be celebration and drinking and excitement, they cannot because of the cloud that is over them. 
And it was not until God had to break in to come in to show them the true joy and party. That is the language of verse three. To bring the reality of what this means. And this joy is beyond. Here's what's interesting about these verses. The hope that they're seeing has nothing to do with changing of their circumstances. In fact, what is being predicted here has not happened yet. It has not occurred. This is the picture that they're supposed to have because it says there's someone that's gonna come and transform this for them. It even in verse four uses the yoke of his burden, the staff, the rod of his oppressor, and then uses this word of Midian. It's talking about this language from Exodus all the way back when the people were oppressed by Egypt, taken as slaves and then released. It's talking about Midian, which is from Judges. And it was when Gideon, this weak, small man, was asked to lead a charge of these people to release them from Midian, this huge oppressor who had oppressed Israel for seven years. And when God even came to him, he said, how can I save Israel? I'm the weakest clan and I'm the smallest. And yet God is saying this, there is going to be a reversal. As much as the cloud looks so big, as much as your oppressor looks so overwhelming, the hope isn't that you can muster up strength. The hope isn't that you can just weather it through. The hope is that I, through weakness, through sending a child, will reverse the whole thing. Through sending a baby, through sending this one, I will reverse and show you what hope really means when darkness really is scattered is when I send in weakness my son to handle it. Wouldn't it be easy to put our hope in something else? Wouldn't it be easy? But yet it's saying our hope must be in this one. See, weakness exposes us. When you and I feel weak, when we feel oppressed, we, it's easy for me, I know, to want to figure out how can I get out from underneath my weakness? How can I get strong in the middle of this weakness? But every Hebrew word in this passage is saying there is no way, in fact, that you can get out from underneath your weakness. In fact, it's saying you have to embrace it. You have to embrace the fact that the point of this entire Advent season is that God sends a child to save you who are listening with ears. He sends a child weak and helpless for the weak. He sends a child in humility and in complete disgusting surroundings with animals and a food trough to save those who wake up in a warm house, pick whatever we want to eat, and never have to worry about if we're gonna make it to where we wanna go because we have transportation. This one became weak. He took on oppression to help us who think we can handle our oppressors. That is the hope that he brings. That is the reality. 
And it is a peace that he gives that is unlike any other. The peace that he gives that is so powerful, that is so Edenic, really, is this. In in verse five, it says, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It is actually saying this. This is the end of a war and it's saying all the stuff on the battlefield has been gathered up and is now being burned. And the picture here is of one who is coming onto that field after the victory has been had and realizing the victory is theirs. In fact, what it's saying about us is that we are the ones who get to come onto the field, onto the battlefield after it's already been won and begin to be a part of burning those things of war because we're now in a time of peace. Because for every boot of the trampling warrior battle and in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for to us a child is born. A child who would be born who would bring this and it's not something that we can earn. The language here is so fascinating because so many, many scholars over the years <clears throat> have actually argued over this. Who is this child? Who really is it? Is it Jesus some think Hezekiah, maybe someone else. Hezekiah was a, was a king who was born actually previous to this. And so it couldn't have been Hezekiah. It had to be someone coming later. It had to be in time and space, someone that would be coming later on in terms of the timing of this. Who would this child be? Who would actually remove them from that? Who would actually show victory and peace through the war? It would have to be someone greater. I was standing outside the other day shooting baskets with my son Jake and all of a sudden one of these military helicopters flew over our house. It was one of those ones with the double propellers and so instead of just the normal you know, sound of the, it was just this loud, it just kind of rattled everything around us. And we both just stopped and stared at it. And all of a sudden, Jake just asked me, he says, dad, are we at war? And all of a sudden in my mind, I had all these, you know, flashes. And I said, no, I hope not. You know, I had this like red dawn, you know, kind of imagery coming in my head. (laughs) I'm thinking, well, you know, what would I do if, if we were at this? But it made me think for a moment, I thought, and this is, this is one of those moments where you go, we live actually in a place where those helicopters fly over and we actually are at peace in a sense. Like there's no physical, tangible, I'm not worried about somebody coming in, attacking me militarily. But it also reminds me that this passage is talking beyond that. What it's saying about the child being born is not about the child being born and growing up and doing this. It's actually saying, Isaiah says, and commentators consistently say, it's not just the child was gonna grow up and do these things. It was that the child was just born. Now that should tell us something. Because the peace we need isn't just about the stuff he does for us. It's who he is. It's about his character. And I will tell you, I'll be the first to admit to you, 
I have really struggled this Christmas season. I have struggled so much with Christmas, personally, because it has been really easy for me, and I'm sure it has been for you, to lose the character and quality of the child himself for what he can give me, what all this is, what all that is when we drive away from here and head to wherever we're going for Christmas with whatever gifts we have. But the point here is who he is. It's that the government will be upon his shoulder. And all this language of government, it's saying that it, the point is that it's not on your shoulders. It's on his. It's a piece of reconciliation. And here's what's amazing about the Bible. All through the Bible, there are passages over and over about when there's, there's some sort of conflict between parties. The Bible is saying the one who's the offender is the one to, to go and reconcile. But in this passage, in this time, in this advent, it's not about us coming to him to reconcile. It's about him coming to us. The baby has come to us to reconcile us. We're not just singing Christmas songs about sweet little babies. We're talking about a Lord and Savior that's given the names of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and yet he has come to reconcile with us. He has broken in. He brings the party. He brings the love, the joy, the hope, the true peace because his government is so different. He doesn't just administer peace, he is peace. His quality is peace. It even says his prince, he is the prince of peace. And you know what's amazing is in the New Testament, I didn't even think about this till I, was, I did more study. The connection that Paul makes here in a, in a, in a letter he wrote to a church in uh, Coloss, uh, Colossians. He wrote in uh, chapter three, verse 15, he said this, listen, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. Rule in your hearts the peace of Christ. I want to ask you some questions about that peace. As we come to this table, what kind of peace rules your heart? What kind of peace rules your heart? Is it a peace of making sure everybody's okay with you. Maybe, maybe it is so important to you to feel tranquil that everybody, every conversation, everyone around you is okay with you. Is your peace looking at your relationships, possibly maybe a child or, or a spouse, and there just seems like no peace in sight? Is that where your greatest peace lies? Is your peace in making sure you make it through this semester, you finish your exams, you go home, you could just sleep? Is your peace in finishing this quarter well in your job? Because I'll tell you what, here's what's hard about this peace. It's unlike any other peace that we experience. Because it 
consumes all of those things. There's only one peace that can transcend those things. And it is why we come to this table. You see, who, who, this king that set this table is the king of hope. And you know what's interesting? In Matthew, when Jesus first starts his ministry, do you know where he goes first to proclaim the gospel of himself? Zebulun and Naphtali. Those two weird cities. He goes first to say, here I am. Turn to me. Those who were the first to fall are going to be the first to hear the good news. Guys, it is true. He has come. He says this. He is the prince of peace. Even as a child, he's prince. And this doesn't mean he just administers peace, and he does, but he is our peace. When you come to this table, you're not just taking his body and blood as something that's like you just do. You're actually communing with Jesus the actual peace. And we come to this table by faith asking that God would use these elements, would use his word to take that in his Holy Spirit and actually reach peace in a place that no part of our other peace can rule. Would he rule in your heart the peace of Christ, the one who is our only hope, the one who is our king. Come forward and receive him. If you're here this morning, maybe you're visiting, maybe all I've said is a little bit fuzzy. It's a little more of the Christmas season-ish stuff. Would you think, would you, I would actually ask you or grab me afterwards, let's talk about the difference in hope and peace in what is happening in this passage and what we see just written on every Christmas card at this time of year. Because what it means to come forward and receive at this table means you're actually taking in the hope and peace of the advent. With that, let's stand together.